Okay. Take heart. I have overcome the world. That's what Jesus said. And right at the beginning of John's Gospel, it talks about the world being in darkness and how Jesus, the light of the world, plunges into the darkness and exposes all that has been covered up. John 1.9 says, The true light that gives light to every man was coming into the world. And then it goes on. He was in the world, and though the world was made through him, the world did not recognize him. He came to that which was his own, but his own did not receive him. Yet to all who received him, to those who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. Jesus shines his light on the sinfulness of his people. But not in order to point out and to shame and to guilt or to scorn. But it says that as God's lamb, that he came in order to take away the world's sin. And if we do a little walk through John's gospel, we see that Jesus is able to turn everything on its head. He is able to do the extraordinary with the ordinary. And he turns water into wine. He helps Nicodemus to understand that he can have a new start, a new beginning. He shows a Samaritan woman that God sees every part of her, even the bits that she wants no one else to know, that he sees, and she cannot hide that from him. He heals He feeds, he gives bread and fish to thousands of people. And he is the bread of life, the true source of life itself. He makes blind eyes see. He calls out unbelief when he sees it. And he shows that death is not final. He raises Lazarus to life. And then he comes to Jerusalem, and the people continue in their unbelief. They reject Jesus, and they find a way to kill him. And just before our passage today, Jesus washes his friends' feet. And he tells them, in no uncertain terms, that they are going to let him down. But he also promises, in spite of that, that he is going to send his Holy Spirit, who will continue to do the work that Jesus has done. He will convict people of their guilt, but he will also guide them in all truth. And he encourages his friends to remain in him, like branches are attached to the vine. But Jesus knows what's going to come next. He's having his last meal with his friends. And he will be arrested. 
and be handed over to the people and tried and crucified. But this also has implications for Jesus' friends. In accepting Jesus and what he's about to do on the cross, it's like they're stepping out of darkness into light as well. They're going to be transformed. They're about to be born again, healed, their eyes opened, and they will see. Except, of course, we know that Judas doesn't quite get it. He's still trying to live with one foot in the world and the other with Jesus, and he gets swayed, he makes bad choices, and he comes unstuck. It's when the Holy Spirit comes that they will be transformed from the inside out. The old will have gone, the new will have come, and all that Jesus will have accomplished on the cross and through his resurrection will be imprinted on their hearts so that Jesus can be seen throughout their lives. At the end of John 15, which is a little bit before our passage starts, Jesus tells his friends, because the world hates me, it will also hate you. The bottom line is that people do not like to be told that they're wrong and sinful. And we don't like to think that we're not as good as we think we are. We like to think that we're basically good that we're decent, hard-working people who occasionally mess up. So to be confronted with our own badness is incredibly uncomfortable. And you can just imagine the reaction from people around you. I don't know whether you've ever been in a situation where um, somebody in your group of friends or colleagues decides that something's slightly dishonest or slightly not okay, or slightly unkind is a good idea to do. I don't know whether you've ever been in that scenario. I know I have, not with my colleagues here, but because <laughs> they're all lovely. They are. Um, but as soon as you decide not to do that thing which is unhelpful or unkind or not good. It's kind of like the tables get turned on to you. And sometimes, sometimes I have to confess I haven't been brave enough to, to be the person that stands up and says, no, this is wrong. And I've gone along and someone else has stood up and said, this is not okay, this is not right. And as soon as somebody does that, there's a standard And the good person is branded as a party pooper or a goody two-shoes or the odd one out. Or they're told, well, just because you don't want to do it doesn't mean to say that we're not going to. Don't spoil our fun. It's unpopular and it's awkward. And it marks you out as being different when you come at things in a different way. And often scorn and ridicule will follow. Alistair McGrath 
who I've been reading quite a lot of recently, um, says this, to be a Christian is to potentially suffer on account of Christ who suffered first in order that believers may be called by his name. To be a Christian is to be called out of the world and bear the force of its fury at it having lost its control of us. So we go back to Jesus and his friends. And the gravity of the situation is starting to sink in. Jesus talks about leaving his friends for a while and that they will be full of mourning, weeping and grief as the world looks on and rejoices. Jesus is going to his death. He will die. He has to. It's the only way. Someone who has done nothing wrong puts himself in the place of us who have so that our punishment falls on him. The Bible says that the wages of sin, what we earn by not following God, is death. And it's hard for us to get our heads around the fact that someone would choose to die on behalf of people who are guilty. But Jesus can take it that step further. He dies, but then he comes back to life again, as if nothing happened, like a walk in the park. We know it's not a walk in the park for him, but somehow, through his death on the cross, through his wrestling, he's able to then come out the other side and bring new life. Jesus was not going to be staying dead. Death was not a problem for him. There's new life and new hope and a way through. And the things that we think are too big or are too difficult or too hard or too impossible... They're not too difficult for Jesus. And Jesus uses a a picture, which always makes me laugh. Um, For those of you that have had children, there are some amazing dragon warrior women who are not phased at all by the idea of childbirth. Um, You know, you were ready you were prepared for it, you were going to endure the pain, and you got a lovely bouncing baby as a result. wasn't like that with me. Um, even the thought of giving birth just terrified me completely. Um, and um, I had pretty much every drug that was going. I, I, you know, epidural, madam, it's too blooming right, I am so having that. Um, just try and stop me. Um, I actually had a, a C-section in the end. But... Jesus was in a pre-epidural culture. And there was only one, re- one way of really giving birth, and that was to push on through, push through the pain. But of course it was worth it, because what follows pain is the joy of the new life. In verse 32, Jesus says, A time is coming, and has come, when you will be scattered. No, this is... Even worse, isn't it? No, it's, it's going to be difficult enough, going to be really hard. There's going to be some joy, but now we're going to be scattered everywhere. 
Each of you will go to his own home. You will leave me alone. Yet I'm not alone because my father is with me. Even Jesus' friends deserting him is not too much for him because he knows that his father is with him. And Jesus says, I've told you these things so that in me you may have peace. In this world you will have trouble. But take heart, I have overcome the world. And the reality is that in the depths of the grave, when Jesus took the world's sin, in the depths of all that the devil had, um, had launched forth in his badness, he was wrestled with, Jesus won, and he came back to prove it because his love reached deeper and further than anything that the devil could throw at him. Because God loved the world so much, he gave Jesus his son that whoever believes in him will not die or perish, or be overcome, or be defeated, but will live eternally. Jesus has overcome. And it's when the disciples are filled with the Holy Spirit that the world sees Jesus alive and kicking in each of them, living that risen new life, which is so different to the way that everyone around them lives. Jesus is telling his friends, you have got nothing to fear. I'm going to read a little excerpt from a book by Henri Nguyen. Nguyen? Um, And uh, it's talking about living in fear and living in love. How can we live in the midst of a world marked by fear, hatred and violence and not be destroyed by it? When Jesus prays to his father for his disciples, he responds to this question by saying, I'm not asking you to remove them from the world, but to protect them from the evil one. They do not belong to the world any more than I belong to the world. To live in the world without belonging to the world summarizes the essence of the spiritual life. The spiritual life keeps us aware that our true house is not the house of fear, in which the powers of hatred and violence rule, but the house of love, where God resides. Hardly a day passes in our lives without our experience of inner or outer fears, anxieties, apprehensions, and preoccupations. These dark powers have pervaded every part of our world to such a degree that we can never fully escape them. Still, it is possible not to belong to these powers, not to build our dwelling place among them, but to choose the house of love as our home. This choice is made not just once and for all by a living spiritual life. Oh, sorry, not just once and for all, but by a living and spiritual life, praying at all times and thus breathing God's breath. Through the spiritual life, we gradually move from the house of fear to the house of love. So it's possible then, through what Jesus has done on the cross, 
to be in the world and not be completely swayed and overwhelmed by it. It's possible to live differently through the power of the Holy Spirit. And I'm, I have to say, I'm, the children's worker in me cannot be suppressed for very long. And um, I have a visual aid, which I think will help us to get our heads around this. And I'm, I'm going to ask, can John come out, first of all? Um, yeah, give, give John a round of applause. There we go. I'll move this over here. So John is, is going to be, he is my token Christian this morning, okay? Um, and um, you are one of the saints, aren't you? So I think we need to make him look like one of the saints. So, um, here we go. Got your halo there, got you. I have no idea if these are going to fit or not, but there we go, we'll try. There we go. It's beautiful. Ooh. Lovely. He is a saint. And he's living in the world. And um, I want you to hold this, John, if you can hold one end. There we go, you hold that end. There we are. And then we'll do this over here. I really should have unraveled this before. Okay. Now then, I also have Abby. And Abby, for the purposes of this, I think we're going to need to make this a lot shorter. There we go. For the purposes of this, Abby is going to represent all that's wrong in the world, all that is not good. And so, therefore, I know it's so typecast. <laughs> this is not what I expected. Ooh, beautiful. There we go. Okay, so we've got our Christian, and the thing is that he's in the world, and the world has still got a hold of him, so um, can you kind of like just see, that's it, yeah, yeah, come on, I'll try, try a bit harder, yeah, he's so easily swayed by the world, isn't he? He's so easily swayed. And a bit like we said about Judas earlier on, that he kind of had one foot here and one foot here, and he kind of ended up over this side. But can you come back over this way? Because the thing is that we invite Jesus in, don't we, when we become Christians. It's not that we just decide to suddenly start doing good things. It's not like we suddenly decide, right, um, I'm going to... uh, uh, be kind to my next door neighbour forever. You know, we don't just suddenly start doing the right thing. It's actually it's about the person that we invite in. It's about the person we know. And I've got a few people who are going to. So can I, can I have um, Ken? Yeah, can you can you come up first, please? That's good. Here we go. We've got everybody. Say hello to Jesus. <laughs> okay, because. When John becomes a Christian, he invites Jesus in. So, Jesus, you're, you're there. And Jesus, <laughs> Jesus is there with him. But, of course, when you've, got, when you've got Jesus, it kind of goes without saying that, well, Jesus, he does whatever the Father does. Would you like to come up? And uh, we've got our Father God here. Can everyone give our Father God a round of applause? So... We've got our Father God here, okay, and um, who's missing? 
the Spirit. Don't worry, we've got the Holy Spirit as well somewhere here. Yes, here we go. Brilliant. If you can come and join us. Big round of applause for the Holy Spirit. (laughs) And the Holy Spirit is that part of Jesus which is living in us. The same Spirit that raised Jesus from the dead is in us. So are you feeling, are you feeling a little bit more, bit more confident there? Um, and also, I mean, God does give us the Bible, which is like a double-edged sword, so you can hold that as well. Does it matter that he's got one hand? Because actually, he's got the entire trinity behind him, and actually, he could just stand there. He could just stand there and he'd still win because he's on the winning team. We've got, and we have got a top team here, you know? Yeah. (laughs) He can just stand. The thing is that what we tend to do, can you hold on to the rope again and can you just leave it slack a little bit? So what we tend to do sometimes is we forget that we've got the top team behind us and we try and do it in our own strength. And that's when we kind of get a little bit, you know, sort of pulled in the wrong direction. But what Henri Nouwen was saying in his quote was about living a spiritual life. And actually, if we're getting to know our sword, if we're getting to know the word of God which he's given us, if we're reading that every day, and that's not to kind of... Uh, make it a something that we have to do because otherwise we're not going to be strong enough. It's a something that strengthens us and gives us life in order that we can fight off these attacks. We can probably beat the trident as well, which would be really good. Hey, there we go. (laughs) Um, But we, we we can use it in order to fight off attack And we can also use it to bring life to people around us who need encouragement and who need help. But we've got the entire trinity here. And with the Holy Spirit, the Holy Spirit, there we go, I've got it right. No, the Holy Spirit. um, The Holy Spirit is speaking to us, speaking the words of Jesus and the words of the Father to us. And we can listen, and we can communicate, and that's our prayer life. That's our our day-to-day life with God, that as we're inviting him in and allowing him to take the slack, that we suddenly realize that we're not doing it in our own power and our own strength. And I think sometimes we have this idea that all the strength is over here, And we allow it to have a victory over us that simply isn't necessary because he's already defeated. Look, he's already defeated. Or she is already defeated. Okay, I'm going to ask if you can stay there. Is that okay while I just finish the talk? Because I think it's just helpful to have this visual as we, um, as we finish up. This is um, from a, a book called Enfolded in Love by Julian of Norwich. 
Though we're in such pain, trouble and distress, that it seems to us that we are unable to think of anything except how we are and what we feel, yet as soon as we may, we are to pass lightly over it and count it as nothing. And why? Because God wills that we should understand that if we know him and love him and reverently fear him, we shall have rest and be at peace and we shall rejoice in all that he does. He did not say, you shall not be tempest-tossed, you shall not be work-weary, and you shall not be discomforted. But he said, you shall overcome. You will not be overcome. God wants us to heed these words so that we shall be strong in trust, both in sorrow and in joy, because that's part of life, that's part of being in the world, is that good things happen and bad things happen. But we are not overcome. And Ephesians 20, uh, 6.20 talks about the armour of God, and it talks about that we stand. If we can't do anything else, that we stand. And we can do that knowing what is behind us. Thank you very much. Um, I think we're going to, I'm going to just say a short prayer. Would you like to go and sit down? Thank you so much, everybody. <laughs> Brilliant. <laughs> Shall we stand and um, let's, let's let the reality of that victory sink into our hearts. Most holy, our creator and redeemer, our saviour and our comforter. May we love you with our whole heart by always thinking of you and allowing you in. With our whole mind by directing our whole intention towards you and seeking your glory in everything. And with all our strength by spending all our energies and affection of soul and body in the service of your love alone. Would you be our strength? Would you be our victory? Would you be our hope and our help? And would you help us stand and stand firm, knowing that Jesus has overcome the world? <laughs>